What's up, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can help this show to grow while also getting access to our exclusive Pride content, which includes shows like Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, Special Interviews, Lions of Liberty Roundtables, and much, much more. So check that out. Help us grow at lionsofliberty.com forward slash support. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it's great to have you back with me today for another episode of Felony Friday, a weekly show that is a podcast here on the Lions of Liberty platform. And what Lions of Liberty is, it is a larger platform. We have three podcasts per week. It's actually really like a a variety podcast, which is rare. I actually don't know of another variety podcast where you get three different shows in one podcast feed. But that's what we have here. And we kick off every week with a show hosted by Mark Clare every Monday. And Mark does an excellent job interviewing leaders in the Liberty Movement. And he hosts roundtable discussions as well. Every Wednesday, we have a little bit of a variety show of itself, Electric Liberty Land, hosted by Brian McWilliams. And Brian will do solo shows sometimes, sometimes bring on a guest. Um, it's a funny show. It's uh, really what we call your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. And of course, you wrap up your week with Felony Friday right here, where we are Zeroing in, zooming in on the criminal justice system. We're looking at cases, looking at areas, aspects of the criminal justice system that your normal mainstream media or typical criminal justice podcast don't dive into and don't really um, do their due diligence to give you the truth in these cases. Today's episode is the 121st episode of Felony Friday, and that means you're going to want to... Check out lionsofliberty.com slash FF121. See, 121, FF121. That's how it works. It's easy to find the show notes page. I'll link to a bunch of stuff there about my guest. My guest is someone you're going to love, somebody you know. He's a uh, celebritarian, as we call them. And I'll introduce him in just a minute. But I want to encourage you guys to please subscribe to the Lions of Liberty podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts, be sure to hit that subscribe button. And please, if you have time, if you love this show, go to iTunes, go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, leave a nice little review saying how much you love this podcast. It helps us out so, so much. And we are so appreciative of all the support that we get from you guys. Thank you for listening. Let's get on with the show. My guest today on Felony Friday needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Today I'm joined by... Adam Kokesh. Adam joined the Marines at the age of 17, and he saw war firsthand uh, while serving during the Iraq War. In 2007, he joined Iraq Veterans Against the War and then ended up founding Veterans for Ron Paul. Uh, Adam is a talented and he's a very motivating speaker. If you've seen him speak live, I'm sure you know that. I had the, the pleasure of seeing Adam speak a few weeks ago at the Libertarian Party of Pennsylvania convention. Adam is also an activist. He's been arrested over three dozen times for protesting, smoking cannabis, not smoking cannabis, cursing, filming on a sidewalk, and, and even dancing. And I'm sure we'll get into some of those stories during this show. Adam's also the host of Adam vs. the Man, 
the author of the book of a book titled Freedom, and he's running for president in 2020. So, Adam Kokesh, welcome to Felony Friday. Oh, thank you so much for all that, John. Really appreciate it. And I got to say, you know, Pennsylvania was one of the highlights of this tour so far. You guys have an amazing community there with the Libertarian Party, and it was really an honor to be able to be seated as a delegate, even as an out-of-state resident. But uh, right now I'm on the road, and and I apologize for any background noise. We are carefully making time today on, uh, on, on the way to our next stop. And it's just it's been amazing going to one libertarian convention for, you know, every state, every weekend. It's been uh, just a blast. So where where in the U.S. are you right now? Well, right now we are on our way from Denver to Oklahoma and then next weekend, Louisiana and then Texas the weekend after that, California, or then New York, then California. So flying out for that, then Back to California, and then, yeah, it's just, it's it's an awesome schedule. Uh, like just being on the road for uh, for five months straight this year. Very cool, very cool. Um, before we get you know talking about your campaign and talking about your you know past experiences with the criminal justice system, for any listeners out there, because we do get some uh, a wide range of listeners, especially to Felony Friday, people from the left who are you know really interested in criminal justice reform but might not be on board all of the ideals of liberty and same with the right. We've got people on the right also who, who come for the criminal justice reform. So if you could just sort of sum up and really let people know what first led you to uh, the ideas of liberty and, you know, what really lit, lit that spark for you in the first place. Well, first of all, I guess I always, I, I think this is a great question to ask. And the more we figure out how people come to the message, the more people we can bring to the message. I think that's awesome. I think we do a, a bit of a disservice trying to get it down to a single moment rather than acknowledging that it's, at least for many of us, uh, stubborn folk like myself, a very long process. But the end of it for me was reading Ethics of Liberty by Murray Rothbard. And I can even tell you where I was when I I think it it kind of clicked for me. There was a, a bit of a moment there, but it was everything that led up to it that made it possible for me to be receptive enough to it and to understand it. And it was in 2010, I was running for Congress as a Ron Paul Republican in New Mexico and uh, listening to the audiobook of Ethics for Liberty. And then, you know, leading up to that, though, I I, mean, I don't know where to start. My, my parents being uh, my mom, vaguely liberal, my dad, vaguely conservative, but both distinctly anti-authority uh, was, was definitely the groundwork for me. But joining the Marines and seeing the... Oh, geez. I, I mean, how, how to sum it up? Even when you introduce me as wonderfully as that, I hear the word served and it, it makes me cringe because we were serving politicians and bankers and war profiteers in Iraq. And, and it wasn't even that that woke me up. I, you know, it, it took me years to even process my experience in Iraq. That was 2004, the siege of Fallujah, the, the first battle I was there for. But it wasn't until getting out of the military and being disgruntled that I was able to get the perspective to, to really start questioning things. And so that led me down the rabbit hole, which, which eventually led me to Murray Rothbard and, and acceptance of uh, the, the philosophy of self-ownership and voluntarism. So when you were over serving in Iraq during that time, I mean, were you starting to question things or, or were you still, you know, thinking, you know, I'm, I'm serving the American people or was that starting to, to waver in your mind? 
definitely not while I was there. Well, I, and I did believe that what we were doing was cleaning up our mess and, and doing right by the Iraqi people more than uh, serving the American people, of course. And yeah, it's oh man, geez, it's, it's I haven't been asked these questions in a long time since it was you know <laughs> talking about uh, you know when I was an anti-war activist as, as, as the primary focus of what I was doing with IVAW. But uh, you know, I was kind of um, I, I was a I was a skeptical statist, I would say, during that time. Uh, just if if I could put a, a summarizing label on it, and that I I still believed. In the Constitution, I still believed in a strong military. I still believed, you know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't really understand that taxation is theft. Let's put it that way. But yeah, I was, I, I, I was against the war before the war. I went to a, a day of student walkouts in college, and I, you know, not as a, a Marine. I was a Marine Reservist though at the time, but just as another student, thinking, you know what, this isn't going to be worth it. And you know, not. I, I don't think I was. I was particularly principled. I, it was just. You know, I mean, I was certainly principled as a person, but not in my my philosophical worldview. My worldview was more just sort of you know moderate libertarian leaning statism. I would say. The reason I'm, I'm asking you these questions from from long ago in your past that probably no one has asked you in a while because I think it kind of ties in with uh, with what you're doing today with with running for president. And you know you can talk about it more, but you know said before and you're open about it. You're running for president to peacefully dissolve the government, and uh, and really close down the, the federal government. You said yourself that people and yourself included, there's normally not that that moment. Um, for myself, I, I can kind of point to a moment when the ideas of liberty clicked. It was that Rudy Giuliani, Ron Paul moment during the, the debate when ah, Ron yeah. Paul's calls out Rudy Giuliani and tells everyone about blowback. That's when it first like clicked. I'm like, wait a minute here. What's, what's going on? But yeah, you're right. It takes a long time to get from that. When you start questioning things to get to taxation is theft. Um, The government, this coercive government is, is not a ethical or moral way to, uh, to, to really live. So how, how, this is a long question, but with, with the way you're running your campaign, how is do you think that that is effectively or, or what's your plan for helping to bring people through that libertarian moment that libertarian evolution to really accept yes we need to dissolve the government well there's two things about this first of all john we don't need to get everybody on board with the philosophy to achieve a voluntary society in a way we have to just innovate our way out of this and the innovation when it comes to governance is localization. Let's get it all the way down to the community level and let's institute the kinds of technologies that render it directly obsolete. Like we don't need police for road safety when we have automated self, you know, self-driving cars. Uh, we don't need the Federal Reserve System when we have cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. You know, the, the, these things just uh, are, are going to come whether we want them to or not. What we're doing is accelerating the process and making it more deliberate and conscientious. And for the political side of it, of decentralizing power, we need to build a large public consensus on localization. So specifically with this campaign, while it is an educational campaign, that that is secondary to the primary mission, which is running to win, to build this consensus, to bring about this shift. It's based on the paradigm shift that's already happened. You know, when I travel the country, 
when I find that the one thing Americans have in common is the hell we disdain for government. And you're not going to get, you know, the average American to even read a hundred page book. Is it much, you know? And I'm working right now. I'm, I'm, what I'm like my biggest focus, and what I think this is the most important thing I've ever done in my entire life is I'm working on putting a copy of my book in every single mailbox in New Orleans right before the Libertarian National Convention in a couple of months. So I, I mean, I'm, I, I would be, I would be thrilled if 10% of those books got read. I would be thrilled. If that if that happened, if that was you know five percent of the population even that, that read the book, and the rest went in the trash, because what we're what we're giving people is a way to make it easy for them. You don't have to read all these books. You don't have to understand this philosophy. Just come vote once, and this will be the last federal election that you ever have to vote in at all. And so this is, uh, you know, I am absolutely clear and upfront about what my philosophy is. So I'm getting a bigger platform for my philosophy at the same time as I'm able to build a consensus around the practical policy that I get when I apply my philosophy, when I apply my principles, you know, and that's, that's, I think an important shift for this movement, instead of trying to, to water down and compromise, say, no, I'm going to uh, look, when we apply our principles, you know, we're not talking about imposing anything on every, anybody, everybody gets what they want, at least at the state level, eventually at the local level. So at the same time, you know, when it comes to, to waking people up, I think we're at a critical mass where we can take this message to the mainstream with a practical application, which is let's localize government. Excuse me. So in, in, in campaigning, you know, I get to, I get to lead with, Hey, look, here's an awesome way that we move forward. By the way, here's why. And it's a gateway for a lot of people because if you just go knock on people's doors and say, hey, I've got this philosophy, you know, come listen to me and together we'll eventually someone will take care of the government thing. And, you know, we'll all live more free and more agorist and, and more voluntary and, and go golf and all that. You know, they're going to slam the door in your face. They don't care. You know, human beings are creatures of pragmatism, first and foremost. Principles don't mean anything if you can't feed your family. And we have to show them how when you apply these principles in a specific, immediate way, they make their lives immediately better. So if you go and say, do you care who your next president is? And I said this about Ron Paul when I was campaigning for him, that it creates a way that gives you the opportunity to talk about that philosophy. Do you care about who your next president is? Oh, OK, well, hey, of all these people, there's all these typical unprincipled jerks who want to be in charge of you. And then there's one guy whose, whose worldview is based on principle. And here's what he's proposing. And what, what happened with Ron Paul is Ron Paul was talking about the Constitution. And, you know, he almost never spoke about voluntarism or voluntarism or, or the philosophy of liberty behind all of that. And when he was able to create this gateway, what happened is that people first identified with him uh, as a presidential candidate and with his platform and said, well, gee, he's the only one on stage on these debates who's not totally full of shit. I guess we should listen to him. And they go, yeah, well, he's our guy. We're not going to put up with any of these other you know, lying tyrants or would-be tyrants. Absolutely not. Ron Paul's the guy. And then it, it leads them to want to figure out where those positions come from. And it, it's, it's a very powerful psychological gateway for people to say, well, let's, you know, if we're going to support this in a political context, let's go then understand it in a philosophical context. And, and I think what I'm able to do with my campaign is similar to what Ron Paul did, but a, a much shorter gateway, because I'm going straight to the book. I'm going straight to, hey, this is why. And hey, this is the ideal of a stateless voluntary society. 
What what kind of reception are you getting from these libertarian conventions? From I know in Pennsylvania it was it was a welcome reception, but are are you getting some pushback for the way that you're running your campaign? No, uh, I mean the most the most pushback I get, for, which which I think is really people just trying to troll me at this point. Uh, you know, from from people who uh, that libertarians are not anarchists and they're the only real anarchists and they're the hardcore ones. You know that they they say you know that they wish my campaign was more about just making fun of the system and putting voluntarism up front. And you know I I, I think what we're doing is very serious. First of all, and I do make fun of the system every chance I get because it certainly deserves to be ridiculed. But what we're talking about in in terms of creating practical policy that improves everyone's lives, we're talking about ending the most vicious, violent, destructive, evil parts of statism and it's a very serious mission and and what we're doing is using yes we're using the, the political process against itself to, to withdraw consent turning the presidential election into a referendum on whether or not the federal government should be allowed to exist um so just just to be clear about that i, I really should have said this a lot sooner uh because i really hate it you know also when people say that i'm running for president because that i don't think there's anything more anti-freedom and unlibertarian you can say than I want to be president of the United States because you're saying I want to be in charge of this violent, unethical institution and I want to be in charge of people. I want to exercise this unjust authority. And I would say, no, absolutely not. And just to be clear, when, when we say I'm running to dissolve the federal government entirely, it, it, it's actually uh, you know a really relatively cut and dry process of saying we're going to I, I'm going to go in on day one and sign one executive order. That's the only thing I'm going to do as president is declare the federal government of no authority, declare it bankrupt and resign from being the president to be custodian of the federal government. So the only authority that I would have is not the authority of the, of the presidency and not even the authority to dissolve the federal government, but the authority to oversee a process that is laid out in advance in detail in this executive order so people know exactly what they are voting for. How, how long do you think it would take to dissolve the federal government? How many, I mean, is this something that could be done in a couple of months or you think it would take, take a few years? Well, that's a really good question. To, to do it. So, I mean, cause a lot, I mean, like it or not, there's a lot of people who are reliant upon different aspects of the federal government. They've been sucking at the government's teeth. So, I mean, it, it, there might be, oh, yeah. could be some riots in the streets, things like that. Well, no, no. See, we now we we have certainly. It's not that difficult to engineer the process to account for that and make sure that we don't pull the rug out from underneath anyone. So, in terms of dissolving the federal government, you could say it all happens in a moment on day one with that signature of saying no more authority. Federal laws are not enforced. The drug war is over. You know, all all of that, right? Or at least we get a reset on the drug war down to the state level. And with that executive order, 95% of the federal personnel, you know, not counting the military, get sent home right away. You know, you, you, there's going to be a severance package of, of, you know, whatever is reasonable that we can manage at that point. Uh, they get, they're going to get almost two months notice from the election in, in November to, excuse me, well, you know, when I swear in January and sign this executive order. And then. There's a, a process. I always say that we're dissolving the federal government in a peaceful, responsible, orderly manner. So the first thing is with the debt. We are disowning the debt on paper. Uh, the debt to foreign banks and governments and corporations is illegitimate. It's intergenerational child abuse to force your children to pay for stuff 
that they never had a say in, let alone never even had a chance to really enjoy because the money was spent before they were born. So no, I'm going in as a bankruptcy agent. So my fiduciary responsibility is to pay back the legitimate creditors of the American government. That's the American people. So as we dissolve the assets of the federal government, the funds will go into Social Security as a spun-off institution that will be solvent for at least several decades. And then if there's anything remaining, it'll go to fund uh, Medicare, Medicaid, SGIP, those kind of very broad social services programs that people do rely on. So we're not going to pull the rug out from underneath anyone. Uh, The VA, for example, is going to get a small uh, endowment and get spun off as a private institution where every single veteran in America gets one ownership voting share. So you give the VA to the veterans, get a reset on the drug war, guarantee you're not going to have 20 veterans committing suicide a day. Now, one of the real exciting parts of this is that we get to release all the records, all the secrets come to light, all the all the lies, all the patents and technology that's been kept from the American people. All of that is pretty much going to be released right away on the Internet. The only reason I say pretty much is because there's the caveat of when we go and say we're going to release all the records that we have to redact any personal private information that shouldn't be made public that you know might create a liability for an un- individual unjustly. So there has to be a place where we process that data. So for most agencies like the IRS, the you know DEA, the uh, FDA, um, the Department of Energy, Department of Education, these you know federal regulatory in- in agencies that don't do anything of immediate service to people. That, that you send 95% of the people home right away. You have a 5% skeleton crew to handle the records and make sure the physical properties end up getting consolidated into one agency, probably the Department of Defense or the Department of the Interior, one of these agencies that already controls a lot of land properties. And they're going to be the clearinghouse for the liquidation of a lot of those. So while most of the benefit happens immediately, then there's this administrative process that is going to take probably two or three years for, for the bulk of it to get done. And then even then, there's going to be a long tail to that, whereas like the VA gets spun off and it's going to last you know, maybe for just a generation or two, you know, until uh, all the veterans today uh, living are, are are dead or taken care of. Yeah, or or until it just becomes because you have such a thriving free market in healthcare, until it becomes unnes- unnecessary, right? That it won't make sense to have that separate entity. Yeah. So with uh, yeah, spinning off the the VA, if you're closing down the government, you're going to have a full free market in healthcare. It's going to make it eventually uh, much not even going to be a need for any VA healthcare because the market for healthcare is just going to be so efficient and uh, and valuable to people that it's not going to be necessary to have this separate organization. So that should dissolve on its own. I can, I can see that happening. I can see everything you're talking about so far. I, I can envision it all happening. Um, you did mention at the beginning here, we first started talking about dissolving the government on day one, sort of the the military wouldn't get sent home right away. What would be the plan for the military? Yeah, the military is probably the biggest organizational task. Uh, And obviously, with a lot of these other big agencies like the CIA and the FBI, you have similar uh, challenges, none of which, you know, can't be overcome, of course. Uh, So for the military, in the foreign bases and and in foreign operations, you bring all the troops home uh, immediately, except for a similar skeleton crew, like I described for other federal agencies of uh, someone to handle the records and to handle the selling of those properties. So all the foreign bases, first, all the troops from abroad would come home, um, except for the skeleton crews. All the equipment that we could bring home would be brought back to the continental United States. 
And then all the foreign military bases would be sold off to whoever wanted to buy them. So there would be that process and that part of the liquidation. And then those skeleton crews on those military bases would come home. Once everybody's home, and this can kind of happen concurrently, all of the uh, offensive weaponry of the U.S. military is de-weaponized and auctioned off for industrial purposes. The most important thing here is the nuclear arsenal. Day one, by declaring the federal government of no authority, we are effectively cutting the cord to the red button. That authority to use nuclear weapons will no longer exist. I think that is critically important for human progress. So with all that, you know, the, the material, though, we want to put that to good use. We want to create whatever the market will support in terms of you know, mechanisms for those materials being put to the use of the American people who have been stolen from so that they might come into existence in the first place. So nuclear weapons, aircraft carriers, nuclear submarines, long-range bombers, you know, the long-range you know, drones that, that, that uh, shoot missiles at wedding parties, those kind of things, those all get liquidated and uh, you know, de-weaponized and liquidated. Then the weaponry that can be used for legitimate defensive purposes, missile defense, tanks, you know, uh, surface-to-air missiles, small arms, you know, individual infantry equipment, all that sort of thing, those get apportioned among the states. So that is, that is the, the biggest administrative process in dissolving the federal government. But it gets us much closer to the founders' vision of a well-armed population that refuses to be governed by anyone, which, of course, is the ultimate defense. Right on. How do you deal with treaties? Because with closing all these bases, a lot of them are only there because of treaties that previous generations have signed. Well, to some extent, there's going to be a have, have to be a process of paying the legitimate debts of the federal government, and some of those are to foreign entities. Uh, but but I would say that most of them are going to be written off. Most of them are illegitimate. We're declaring bankruptcy. The agency that or the institution, the organization that engaged in those treaties in the first place, simply doesn't exist anymore. Fair enough. So I, I do want to turn back. We talked about your campaign. This is Felony Friday. We got to talk about criminal justice system, and you've had a couple. A couple experiences yourself over the years. Um, I, I guess a good place to start is out of, you know, you've been arrested, I don't know how many times, but out of yeah, all those arrests, either. do you have a favorite? Do you have one that you look back yeah. on and say, that was great? Yeah, I still, I got to say, that's that's an easy one. Jefferson Monument, dancing at the Jefferson yeah. Monument. That was by far my, my favorite arrest. It was uh, simple, classy, elegant, made a beautiful point was uh you know almost so good that, that you know you'd have to think it was choreographed but of course it wasn't my dancing was terrible but uh that, that I, i'm still happy to be known as the the dancing protester and what was the the punishment there or was it a fine or what, what ended up happening yeah so we got arrested and taken away for a few hours and because i refused to stop smiling in my mug shot it took a few hours extra but it was just a sight and release arrest they you know they they do this a lot for basically protests that they don't like in D.C., uh, you know, they'll come up with some excuse like disturbing the peace or unauthorized gathering or wh- whatever it is. And it, it, gives you an ex- it gives them an excuse to not just arrest you because they don't give you a ticket on site. They bring you away to a facility where you get processed. And then they give you a ticket and then they release you. It was really funny that day that, you know, my cell phone was uh, w- was separated from me at another station or uh, when I got arrested or something like that. And we had to walk. Uh, you know, two miles back into the city for this civilization uh, after getting taken to this little out-of-town station. But it was a $100 fine. And we went into court, you know, a couple months later, and they 
kept us waiting around a few hours. And then the, the government attorney came out and said, all right, all right, we're, uh, we're getting ready to go in now, but uh, we, we want to, we're going to reduce your, your citation to $75. And we we're like, ah, screw that. We're not going to pay the dance tax, $75. Get out of here with that trash. And so she came back like an hour later, made us wait around for an hour. And then was like, all right, $50. And we're like, no, screw that. We've been here all morning. Let's go to court. And so we went to court. And there were only four of us at this point. There were five of us who got arrested. And one uh, had to pay a citation by mail because he just couldn't be in D.C. that day. But we, uh, we we just stood up in court. And our attorney was like, motion to dismiss. And the the government attorney was like, ram, ram, ram. So I just grumbled something I can't even remember. And it was dismissed. So we got off with uh, without even paying the fine. Or, or rather, the, the dance tax. And you can go back now. You can dance at the Jefferson Monument without getting arrested. So we did get, uh, if not any law on paper change, we got the enforcement uh, federal policy change. In it. And that's, uh, that's certainly a, a nice, clean, simple victory for civil disobedience. But of course, I don't care about that. That wasn't the point. The point was to show the violent nature of government, that when government says you can't dance here, it means that if you dance here and you assert your right to dance there, then government will use violence against you. And, and thanks to the video that went viral of me getting choke slammed by the cop there, uh, we, we succeeded beyond our wildest dreams and proving our point. Yeah, and we'll, we'll post that video on the show notes page as well. Of course, if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. It is, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy, really, when you look at these, uh, these government agents just attacking Adam and his friends peacefully dancing. So people say you can't change the world by dancing. I think Adam disproved that there, but I I do have to ask you that was that was your favorite. Do you have are there any moments any of these arrests um, where if you could do it again you might not do it or you might do it differently? Uh, definitely with the shotgun civil disobedience in D.C. What I would have done differently is been better prepared for the legal fight. Um, I wouldn't have done the arrest or the action differently, but I would have had lawyers in place. Um, I would can, have been. Can you just explain ex- for anyone who doesn't know about that? Can you explain that? Um, what happened there? Yeah, I loaded a shotgun uh, for a YouTube video that was just 20 seconds long in front of the, uh, well, two blocks away from the White House in the ironically named Freedom Plaza on Independence Day in 2013. And similar to the dance, you know, what I wanted to show was that gun control is a violent policy. When they say you can't have a gun, it means that if you have a gun, they will use violence against you to take it away. And, and that's what happened to me. My house was raided. And and honestly, it was, I mean, it was, it was a fun, uh, you know, traumatic adventure, but uh, yeah, I would have rather not had a flashbang grenade thrown at my dog and laser sights pointed at my chest. And, you know, my roommates and I roughed up for a few hours in my house ransacked. So if I think if I had thought things out better legally, uh, that could have been avoided as well. And what was the result of, of that? Is that where, did you get a felony on your record from that one? Yeah, yeah, that's how I qualify to be on the show today. <laughs> and I did four months in jail. And I, again, being not prepared sufficiently legally uh, made it easy for the government to bully me into a corner. And I ended up taking a plea deal after uh, four months in jail. That's what they do. They push you around and push you around until, I mean, you have, you have no other choice. But uh, I guess that's why you're running for president, right? To, to change that. Yep. Well, well, I mean, I just want my gun rights back. And if we dissolve the federal government, then I can have them. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think we were talking about that at the uh, the LPPA convention that it's it's probably easier, <laughs> probably more likely for you to get your gun rights back by winning the presidency and dissolving the government than actually petitioning. Yeah, your I, I yeah I know that's like a huge thing to assert, but if you think about it, it really is much more likely that through this campaign we will be able to build a consensus in the American people, in the American electorate, that the federal government should not be allowed to exist any longer. You can have whatever you want out of your state government at the state level, rather than it is going to be to change the policy at the federal level and allow me as a convicted felon to own a gun. It's it's crazy, but true. I mean, I, I definitely believe that. And Adam, um, we're going to do a, a quick bonus section with you for our Pride members after the fact, but before I let you go here, can you just let all of the Felony Friday listeners know um, how they can get a, get their hands on your book, how they can support your campaign, where they can learn more about anything else you're working on? Yeah, thanks so much, Sean. I appreciate the opportunity. So my book that I started writing when I was in jail, it's The Ultimate Red Pill. It's free in every digital format possible, including audiobook at thefreedomline.com. That's three words, thefreedomline.com. And from there, you can find kokishforpresident.com. And right now we're really focused, well, we're kind of running two campaigns simultaneously. One is this focus on reforming the LP and winning the Libertarian Party nomination in 2020. So that's gathering delegates, recruiting people to be delegates. And on the other hand, it's spreading this message and waking people up as far and wide as possible. So anything that you can do that assists in that general effort, that general progress of humanity, anything you can do to live more free in your own life, to, to practice uh, you know, what, what we preach in terms of an ethical lifestyle to withdraw your material support from the state as much as possible and to live free and love it. That's the most important thing you can do to help me by helping humanity dance its way forward to freedom. All right, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the always entertaining Adam Kokesh. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. You know, a lot of people, everyone has an opinion on Adam Kokesh. They, they love him. You know, they think he's crazy. They're happy he's running for president. They wish he wasn't running for president. You know, I just think he's, I think he's a good guy. I think he brings a great perspective on the ideas of liberty. I don't agree with everything that he says, but that really doesn't matter. Um, I think he is a worthwhile voice in the movement. And I was really happy to be able to get him to come on the show. And also... I was really happy to be able to have a little conversation with them that we're going to be making available to our Pride members. So if you want to hear a little bit more from Adam Kokesh, be sure to join the Lions of Liberty Pride. Go to lionsofliberty.com slash support, and you'll hear the bonus interview with Adam Kokesh. At just the, at the $5 level, you'll get all the bonus content that we do. Um, if you do want, feeling generous, you want to help us out a little bit more. We are stretching towards a goal. Our, our next goal, our next uh, Patreon goal that we have is for fifteen hundred dollars a month. So we got a little ways to go, about four hundred more dollars. And with that goal, we will bring you, we will guarantee to bring you some phenomenal coverage and probably some phenomenal live coverage from the Libertarian National Convention in New Orleans. So if we can get to that level, Mark Clare and myself, I think Brian has a uh, a commitment where he can't make it, but Mark Clare and myself will cover the LNC for Lions of Liberty if we can get there. So if you want to ramp up that donation, give us 10, 15, 25, even $100. We got one more spot left at 100 and that $100 level 
is the greatest deal for advertising you'll ever see in podcasting. You get, for $100, you get a podcast ad once per week on this platform, which is just an insane deal for the uh, the download numbers that we have. So it's crazy that we're giving it away. We have two people um, at that level already, and we decided to open it up and make it available to one more. So if you want to grab that deal, advertise about your show or your business or whatever you have, and become the last $100 subscriber that we have that we're going to allow in, um, go ahead and do that. Go to lionsliberty.com slash support. And I'm just going to probably leave it at that today, guys. I'm recording this the evening before I go in for ankle surgery. So by the time you hear this, I will have already had my ankle surgery and I'll be done with that and I'll be feeling great hopefully and I don't know, maybe high on painkillers. But that's all I got for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up in the fires of Liberty Burning.